1: Landing page optimization expert, Tim Ash, is here to show you what it takes to create optimal landing pages. LPO brings you detailed case studies, opinions, and analysis from the leaders of landing page optimization. Now here's your host, Tim Ash.
2: Hello everyone, this is Tim Ash, your host for LPO, Landing Page Optimization, here on webmasterradio.fm. Today we're continuing the conversation with thought leaders in conversion and conversion improvement, and I'm very happy to have uh, Linda Bustos on the show. She is the Director of E-Commerce Research at Elastic Path Software. She also writes their fantastic Get Elastic blog. So, uh, Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Uh, well, th- thanks for being on. I uh, I know that you know just uh, for the folks that are listening in, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what Elastic Path does and uh, you know what, why you're interested in conversion.
3: Well, uh, certainly as an e-commerce blogger, conversion rates are the number one thing on anyone's mind. Um, check out. Optimization and reducing abandonment rates are probably the number one thing you can do to actually improve sales and revenues and profits and keep everyone in business and happy for many years to come. So that's why you know, I, I definitely um, try to spend as much time as possible focusing on those areas.
2: Okay, fantastic. Well, um, so we're talking in an e-commerce setting. So from a, just again, I guess I'll provide the background. Uh, Elastic Path is an an e-commerce platform. It's used by a lot of large companies. Uh, Do you also go down to kind of the mid-market and small business as well?
3: Well, we've actually recently, uh, within the last year or so, decided to, Hone down on uh, digital goods and telecommunications companies, software companies, digital publishers, because that's kind of what fits best with our product and also where we see the industry going. So mm-hmm. we do have um, we do have customers from various industries, including mid market, including retail, and you know that kind of thing. But um, but going ahead, we are basically uh, focusing on, on one particular market.
2: So the delivery of digital goods so it could be anything from software to downloads to music that kind of stuff right
3: Yeah we find that those types of industries and businesses their requirements for e-commerce sites are slightly different so they might need you know subscriptions and bundling and and certain features which are really unique to to that type of a business
2: Well let's talk about that uh that distinction a little bit what is the difference in You know, selling bits and selling atoms, as they used to say in the old days of the Internet. You know, bits being information and atoms being hard physical goods. Why are they different? I mean, e-commerce is an e-commerce, isn't it?
3: Well, we are seeing an explosion in the interest in digital goods. One of the things are actually the wealth of devices that we have now, right? Kindle ebook readers is totally disrupting the publishing industry. We've got downloads for movies and music. So we unfortunately saw some of the big movie rental companies going out of business, but it's just changing technology and changing consumer preferences. So what that opens up is actually quite an exciting area of growth in e-commerce, which is, you know, e-commerce is still growing. It's, it's kind of at a mature level. It's growing in a couple points every year but the digital goods sector is actually continuing to grow in double digit uh points so um we're going to see people buying things online from their mobile and it's actually going to be downloading directly digital goods and and those kind of things so that's actually kind of where the puck is going in e-commerce and and it's not that it's that much different than buying uh, physical goods in terms of purchase process, but the business models and the way that, you know, the way that you actually receive and and goods are fulfilled are going to be different. And also people are going to be looking to new ways to actually buy and share the content that they own. Um, if, if, okay. Yeah.
2: So, so let's talk about that a little bit. So, um, you mentioned some things like uh, subscription models. Obviously, you don't buy most physical goods in a subscription. Um, Then you also, I mean, to my mind, there's also a much higher potential for fraud when you're talking about downloadable uh, stuff. Uh, Have you seen that as well?
3: Well, piracy is always going to be an issue. So, whoever is producing the digital content will need to take those steps to to make their products non-reproducible and and we see that sometimes where your product is available for only a little amount of time and then it expires after a certain amount and you either renew or you get bumped back down to the you know free version of a software for example or you can only copy uh mp3 file a certain amount of times or across a certain amount of devices so digital rights management is very important and that's also needs to be baked into an e-commerce system to be able to handle that and to be able to send a triggered email when that person's license is expiring for example
2: okay so so there's a perfect example let's say that uh, you know I bought something and then uh, say an ebook. I downloaded it and then I say well I'm just going to kind of Cancel it and charge back my, um, you know, transaction. You actually have the ability through digital rights management to kind of pull the plug, so that ebook becomes unreadable all of a sudden or unusable, right?
3: Yeah, and even beyond that, one of the new exciting things that Amazon is doing is they're playing around with a new type of licensing model where you could actually buy an ebook and then lend it to a friend for a certain amount of time. So you own the copy, but you transfer it to a friend's device for a certain amount of time, and you can't access that until they actually transfer it back to you. So it's just like lending a book in the real world, but it's all done digitally.
2: Okay, so as long as there's only one copy floating around, you make it easy to to move it, basically. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's So so kind of a completely different world. And uh, also, it seems like uh, one of the nice things about digital goods is you, in many cases, instantly have an international market. Are you having to take a lot of uh, cross-cultural issues into account in, in your e-commerce platform?
3: Well, I think that you know, it really depends on what digital product you're selling. I mean, the MP3 files are compatible pretty much around the world. Somewhere where you might get into some issues internationally is sometimes there's taxes and and legal things that happen depending on where the digital content is located. So, for example, in the EU, there might be specific VAT tax applied on there or or specific restrictions based on trade agreements and stuff.
2: You know, like Value-added tax. Yeah, I just came back. We had the, the inaugural conversion conference in Germany back in in uh, October of this year in Hamburg, and I know that the Germans are crazy about privacy rights and, and uh, things like that that uh, in the U.S. are are kind of a, you know, looked at in a much different light. For example, a quarter million households in Germany opted out of Google Maps Street View. Uh, because they think that's spying on them. So uh, do you see those kind of cultural sensitivities when it
3: comes to uh, downloadable goods? Um, you know, that's an interesting story about the Google Maps. I haven't really heard of, of any cultural differences with the items themselves or with the software themselves. You might come across language and instructional and device compatibility issues um, if You might also come across payment issues. The People from different cultures, especially Germany, right, they're not as credit card indoctrinated as we are here in the West. Same with Asia and Brazil. They have different ways. Some countries, they prefer to pay in installments, and that's very common. So you would need to adjust your checkout process to be able to process, um, you know, payments over three or four months installment time. So I see it more on the kind of, you know, on the payment side rather than the products itself but that's a really interesting example of the Google Maps
2: oh, well very good so uh, we're about to take a commercial break and when we come back from our break um, I want to explore a little bit more about uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of e-commerce conversion with you this is your host Tim Ash for LPO landing page optimization and we'll be back after a short word from our sponsors
1: more LPO landing page optimization in just a moment.
0: Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money you can promote any product immediately no contracts required looking for recurring commissions upsell products clickbank's got them and best of all you can make up to 75 percent commissions ready to become the next clickbank success story sign up now for free at clickbank.com oh yeah my day is done time for happy hour you're already done for the day Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents... The 2011 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to www.iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is January 28, 2011. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized Certificate of Achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry today into the Web Marketing Association's 2011 IAC Awards. Go to www.iacaward.org now. PPC Rockstars will take you to the promised land of PPC Profit. Live broadcast Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
1: Welcome back to LPO, landing page optimization, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Tim Ash.
2: And we're back. This is Tim Ash, your host for LPO, Landing Page Optimization. Today I'm talking with Linda Bustos from Elastic Path. And we're just talking about kind of uh, e-commerce and the e-commerce of uh, digital goods in particular. Uh, Let's talk, uh, switch gears for a little and talk about just kind of e-commerce mechanics in particular. I, uh, I know that pretty much everybody has to go through... A checkout process, if they want to buy something, we don't have this kind of universal wallets that they've been talking about for years yet, right? But uh, let's talk about some of the conversion killers that you've seen in e-commerce checkout processes and and how to overcome them.
3: Well, um, there's many, many things. I think one of the top things that researchers have found and many, many uh, AB split testing Things will back this up is that required registration is a number one thing that customers dread and that can actually improve your checkout completions if you require registration. Actually, moving towards a required, um, moving towards a guest checkout. So, um, Forrester Research has done studies on this and actually found that 23% of shoppers will actually abandon just at the site of seeing a required registration. And another thing I like to play around with with required reg is to um, sorry one of the things that I like to do with registration and sign-ins and stuff is actually to move the guest checkout first in the in the way that the eye scans the page. So before the sign in box to actually put the registration box um to put the guest checkout box there. okay Another so basically way. you
2: know reprioritize uh, the, the registration requirement by default uh, it's like we expect people to register and by you're saying by default make it just a breeze through guest checkout without registering.
3: That's right. And then there's an alternative way to approach that as well. If you've ever shopped with Amazon, you'll notice that there's one field to enter your email address in the first step. And then there's radio buttons to actually choose whether you have a password with Amazon or not. So this is actually a great solution because what Jared Spool and his team have found with with site testing and usability tests is that the user won't actually necessarily read any instructions or labels or really realize what they're doing, they'll look for an open field and start typing. So by streamlining a checkout process where the one open field serves both returning visitors and new customers, then you actually don't get anyone caught up in the wrong section of the login.
2: Okay, but I want to kind of even question the the question of not how to do Uh, registration right, but why you need registration at all? I mean, to me, this is something that's a holdover from the IT guy saying, well, we need to create a unique record, so therefore we need an email address associated with it. Why can't you ask for that at the end? Create a temporary record, and once they've checked out, if you really need their email, then ask for it then.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the best practice for guest checkouts to improve Include a little blurb in the guest checkout to say, you can always save your information later and create an account at the end of the process. The problem is for a returning visitor who actually wants to access their saved information, you do have to have uh, a, some kind of a login or some kind of a way for that person to access that information. I've checked yeah, so out with really- sources.
2: Uh, well, well. my question is, so some models where, you know, you just subscribe and you only do that once, in, in many of these kind of models, uh, business models, that is, it, there's really no return visitor or that's such an infrequent occurrence. It's not like you're really saving me time. If I have to re-up my subscription in a year and I can do that via a link in an email that you sent me just before it expires, that gets around the whole need for that in the first place. So I'm still not convinced that registration in most of these cases is needed at all. You, You're not really saving me that much time on a return visit.
3: Well, there's also the cases for um, needing a a login to be able to access your, for example, if we're talking about subscription products, sometimes there's um, preferences in your subscription. So, you know, frequency or if you want to at any time upgrade to the higher, to the pro version or to the more frequent version or to the, you know the product on steroids, or if you want to access a license key, then sometimes it's important to to have that. But that, of course, would be coming not in the checkout process, but somewhere else in your navigation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, and the, you know, there's a kind of user login typically in the upper right hand corner of a website uh, uh, that that's specifically for existing clients and stuff. And most of us, or many of us, in the browser have already saved our email address and password in there anyway. So uh, I don't even think of my passwords because I'm the only one who has access to my computer and it's all there for me. How, how often do you see that kind of pre-filling going on in checkouts and registrations?
3: I think pre-filling can actually be a godsend for a lot of users because what Amazon has found is that some customers actually have registered up to ten times because they can't remember the the email address that they signed up with and the password combination. So just start over from scratch is easier than trying to you know do all the mental gymnastics and look through old emails. So um, so yeah, it, it's it's really good for usability to to. Um, you know, not require those things and to allow somebody to slip through without requiring a registration and password. Another interesting thing is the uh, Facebook login and open ID. I'm seeing that more and more on sort of web services, where you're allowed anything on Twitter now, if you want to um, use a, a Twitter application, basically, you just click once, and it connects with all of your Twitter information, you don't need to to remember those things, so pre-filled boxes are great. If um, if somebody has already saved in their browser, then they don't have to think of those things.
2: Okay, so how many Facebook Open IDs are there floating around as a percentage of, say, U.S. Uh, e-commerce buyers? Do you have any numbers on that that you're seeing across your installed base?
3: Well, I don't have any data on Facebook users. I think uh, I haven't actually seen it on an e-commerce site yet, but. Um, I think that, you know, as we see it happening more with content sites and web services, then if that proves to be, you know, effective for them, then maybe e-commerce sites will start looking at that.
2: Okay, so really what we're talking about is uh, Facebook's F8 open social initiative. You know, when you come up, come to a website and it says, hey, would you like us to share your Facebook information so we can personalize the experience? And if you say yes, they can automatically pull in all of your Facebook-related stuff. So it kind of logs you into their website and shares personal information with the website at the same time.
3: So if you did, like a PayPal account, have your credit card information stored with a Facebook account, then you would be able to check out without any registration. Now, of course, we know Facebook's reputation for uh, messing around with user data, so I don't know, you know how close we are to that in an e-commerce setting, whether consumers will actually be trusting of that service. Mm-hmm.
2: But that's pretty high penetration. I understand about 30% of U.S. Uh, e-commerce users have a Facebook profile. So it makes it real easy to base it. It's, it's even faster in a way. You mentioned Amazon a couple of times than Amazon's, you know, one-click checkout. Here you just, you know, hit one button and all of your information is shared, uh, whatever you allow to be shared, of course, uh, from Facebook. So it seems pretty convenient and it has a high penetration already.
3: And it's only growing.
2: It would, what's the last count? $600 million? No, Something like that? Worldwide?
3: Yeah, it's a big number. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, well, I'm sure you have some other kind of tripwires or problems that you've seen in checkout presses besides registrations. What are you seeing out there the, that are conversion problems when you check out?
3: Well, you know, kind of a, a dark horse tip, which I'm actually going to be sharing on the blog tomorrow, it actually came from a reader who read one of the blog posts just talking about persistent cookies. So I think persistent cookies are great. And again, a persistent cookie is something that will save, for example, the shopping cart contents that somebody's bookmarked and added some things to cart, and they're really intending to come back in a day or two. They Maybe they need to think about it. Maybe they need to um, do a little bit more research, but saving those contents in the cart is is actually saving a sale when they do come back. If you do look at your days to purchase or visit to purchase reports in your web analytics, you might see that this is common behavior on your site as well. So one of our readers sent me an email and said that they had actually tested telling people how long they they, um, keep the carts alive. So in that case, it was 30 days. And that actually bumped up conversion rates by 6%. So just actually telling somebody that they can come back maybe gave them more confidence that they could come back later and check out. So that was really an interesting thing. Um, I also recommend to keep the the stuff in the cart as as long as it makes sense for you to do. So 30 days is a good window, you know, 14 days, something like that.
2: Very good. So keep your cart alive so if they come back, their information is still saved and they can just pick up where they left off. We're going to take another commercial break. Uh, to hear from our wonderful sponsors and we'll be back in in a couple of minutes with lpo landing page optimization
1: more lpo landing page optimization in just a moment
2: BruceClay.com
0: From domains to digital
2: marketing social media to blogging you can reach this broad audience by using what you're
0: listening to now reach the thousands of internet marketers that download and listen live to the premier on-air and on-demand podcast network webmasterradio.fm with the
2: internet marketing channel our ad campaigns are fully integrated with multiple avenues of exposure from slick effective 30-second commercials to detailed informative 30-minute town hall meetings expose your products and services to listeners and podcasters of
0: not just shows like market edge and domain masters but anyone looking for ways to market their business with your product contact sales at webmasterradio.fm to find out more If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. CEO Coach, Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Culture and Business Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Welcome back to LPO, Landing Page Optimization. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Tim Ash.
2: Welcome back. This is your host Tim Ash with LPO, Landing Page Optimization, here on WebmasterRadio.fm. Today, my guest is uh, Linda Bustos, the Director of E-commerce Research at Elastic Path Software. Uh, Linda also has something in common with me. We're, We're both just so heads down. Uh, about all this e-commerce and internet marketing stuff that we don't even know what's going on in the quote-unquote real world. Uh, What was it you shared with me earlier, Linda? Who in the world is Justin Bieber?
3: Uh, yeah, I had a Twitter conversation with a few people uh, the other day because Google released its top 10, you know, searches of the year and about five of them I couldn't identify. And one of them I could identify, Justin Bieber, but uh, I actually did have to very recently Google who he was because I kept hearing this name and I had no clue. So I, I feel, you know, kind of old and out of touch with pop culture and <laughs> and digital life.
2: Oh, boy, you feel old. Uh, no, it's a... Uh... Yeah, I, I, you know, I've heard the name, I I might have even heard some of his songs, but I couldn't tell you, well, I guess I know he's a singer, but uh, one of those like teeny bopper kind of singers, but uh, I don't know that I could identify one if I heard it. Um, Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to keep working 24-7 on e-commerce and improving conversion rates and making the world a better place that way.
3: That's right. I think it's okay to be ignorant of some things.
2: Yes, there's not enough room in my head. Something falls out of my left ear every time I put something new in. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's keep talking about kind of conversion killers in the checkout process. Uh, what else are you seeing out there that uh, hopefully you're warning your clients against doing?
3: Well, one of the first things that we look at is actually web performance and page load speed, not just on the home page but also in the checkout process because customers don't differentiate between home page you know tolerance for page loads and anywhere else on your site. and in fact, the, uh, the cart and the checkout process because of the server calls it has to make because of connecting to payment gateways and stuff like that can actually be the biggest bottleneck and the biggest place where um, where the user gets frustrated in waiting. And actually, Forrester Research, again, I keep citing Forrester, but they put out some really great stuff, and they did some research on what is the perceived you know, time limit that customers will bear waiting, and it was actually two seconds. So it's not even if your page loads faster than two seconds, it's if they feel like they're waiting two seconds. So any improvement that you can make on the technical side of getting those page loads faster, whether that's, you know, caching your content and in several locations around the world using a service like Akamai or a content delivery network or something like that, uh, it's really important to uh, not just test that in the city that you're living and everyone's working at, but also at, at the places where you're getting a lot of orders from, because sometimes the, the performance can be delayed the further away from your server you are.
2: Okay. So our attention spans are short. We expect it now. High bandwidth is here. So uh, usually it's not page load times aren't based on the size of your page unless you're streaming media or something. But what you're talking about is that there's some inevitable delays built into e-commerce like reaching out to third parties and like Visa and payment gateways, waiting for them. Those you don't have any control over. But uh, and also, it seems like it'd be very hard to cache. You mentioned caching. Caching is okay for static pages or pages that don't change. But in the checkout process, isn't every step kind of unique and functional and interactive? There's really no nothing really to cache.
3: Well, it's your shopping cart page is also a part of the process, right? So you'll have the images there and, and uh, just how content is being pulled out from your system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So content delivery networks or CDNs are really critical. Like you say, you, uh, your clients are all over the world and so your servers have to be as well. And so what CDNs do is they kind of put it out there in many places on the internet and so the closest one gets the call for the page. Uh, Any other thoughts or tips on uh, improving conversion uh, through the checkout process?
3: Well, um, there's another thing inside the the checkout process. You'll want to look through your funnel reports in Google Analytics or whatever analytics package that you're using and try to identify the page with the most drop-off and start there with the optimization. So you might find that that's actually a page that has a form. So form opt- web form optimization is, is, you know, a great place to get some gains. And, and what we always try and do is look through the forms and see a couple things. Number one, are there any fields that you can sacrifice? Um, are there any business reasons why you absolutely need to have a form that, you know, maybe an outside person might come and say, you know, you don't need that industry field or you don't need to ask for a person's hobbies or preferences. You know, you don't need to ask for the email opt in, for example, those kind of things like those things should all be on the table to be able to test. Right. Because some people have very strong opinions that things should be there, should be asked in a certain way. And then, you know, when you actually run the test, you find out that there's a stronger business case from a profit perspective to to not include those things.
2: Okay, well, I want to just kind of break that up because I heard two separate, and I think, uh, important things in in there in what you just said. One is that uh, forms should be testable. In many cases, uh, what you have is the window dressing at the the head end of the product. The landing page is testable or the product detail page is testable. But as soon as you go into the checkout process, oops, sorry, can't test there, and often that's where the biggest uh, kind of sc- uh, screw-ups and mistakes are and where a lot of people drop off. So having a testable checkout process in and of itself is uh, is really key. Uh, wouldn't you agree?
3: I agree, and it is unfortunate sometimes when there's a, you know, a a checkout provider that you're using, like a third party, and you know those things are untouchable or they're difficult to use, so... You know, you do what you can. If you can't test the forms, then test around the forms. But uh, you know, sometimes you can play with labels, right? And just what you decide to to label things to make things more clear, or um, the order that things are presented.
2: Yep, and and then the other thing that you mentioned uh, is not asking for information unless it's absolutely required. So uh, remember, this is the part where they've cracked open their wallet and they're about to hand you some money. So this is not the time to ask market research questions for your marketing department. It's not the time to uh, suggest that they buy other things. Uh, Just don't distract them and get stripped down the forms to the bare essentials. Absolutely. Uh, Well, we're, uh, thinking about uh just you know e-commerce here and we're talking about e-commerce is there any any kind of last minute uh tips that you can give someone so they can go and put them into practice right away one or two other um nuggets that we can use to make 2011 fourth quarter better
3: well i think now that we're we're so close to uh to the end of the year and a lot of people are, are actually selling a lot for Christmas time a lot of industries not all of the industries but I think you know really really setting the focus for 2011 to have good web analysis and to learn what you can from this year and do proper planning for 2011 look for seasonality segment your web analytics you know have meetings think about things read a lot of books all that kind of stuff and and actually Focus on web analytics strategy and ideas for testing because a lot of your ideas for testing will actually come from your web analytics, not from looking at your site.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a uh, you know let the, let the problems get pointed out numerically inside of your web analytics. In fact, uh, the upcoming conversion conference in March in San Francisco, we're going to have a, a joint keynote. We just announced. Uh, with uh, eMetrics, which is co-located with it by Tom Davenport, and he's the author of several fantastic books, including Competing on Analytics, The New Science of Winning. So um, I think that he and I would both agree with you that uh, looking at your web analytics and uh, plotting out your strategy for improvement based on that is is a key thing. And we'll leave on that note, and that's our New Year's resolution to all of our listeners, higher conversion rates and better web analytics in 2011. I want to thank Linda Bustos from Elastic Pass Software for being my guest. Uh, Thanks, Linda.
3: Thanks so much, Tim. This was fun.
2: And uh, we will uh, stay in touch. Tune in again next week for another exciting conversation with thought leaders in conversion improvement on LPO, Landing Page Optimization.